So can we talk about free trade? Why is it just so confusing? Why is it 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 so confusing? Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Strong and Free, the podcast dedicated to providing you with the information you need on the topics of the day. And today we're going to talk about free trade. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm always, always, always so confused when the media talks about free trade agreements. But before I get into that, let me just say I sound kind of stuffy and I don't have a cold. So forgive me if my voice sounds like I'm sick. I'm not sick. I <laughs> I might be stuffy. I'm not sure. Uh, and also forgive me for last week, missing last week, I was actually on vacation, soaking up some sun and sand, uh, working on my tan. For those that know me personally, I have dark skin, so working on my tan is a joke. <sighs> that doesn't come off very well on a podcast. Um, anyhow, free trade. Um, actually, again, before we get into that, I, w- I spent last week ta- thinking a lot about it this podcast and everything it can be. And I have some pretty high hopes for it. I think that there's a lot of people who have already reached out to me saying how how great uh, an initiative this is and how sick and tired they are of having conversations with their family, their friends, their coworkers, and not feeling uh, like they can talk about politics with them because people are so wrapped up in ideologically driven uh, topics and conversations. And that's bad. You know, it's bad for our discourse when we're scared to even speak up and we're scared to share a different perspective. Um, That is worrying because, again, it means that we're not really having a discourse. Instead, we're just having a conversation about the validation of someone's idea or theory or thought and we're not critically analyzing it and understanding it and unpacking it. So I'm thankful for all the feedback. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of work I need to do on these. And uh, it's a constantly a work in progress. So if you have any comments, please feel free to reach out to me. Strongandfree2018 at gmail.com. Again, sorry if I sound stuffy. I am not sick. I swear I'm not sick. Okay, today we're going to talk about free trade. And again, I don't know about you, but every time I see free trade in the news, every time I hear about it, I just feel like, I'm, am I stupid? I, it's just so confusing. Like the articles are confusing. They, they don't go into too much detail. They um, include a lot of, uh, you know, uh, actors like prime ministers and presidents and their own opinions. But in terms of free trade itself, it's not really discussed. Um, and it's not necessarily the faults of uh, big media, um, news uh, journalists. You know, unpacking free trade is huge because it's an economic theory. It's hard to see the benefits of free trade. You know, I, if, you, if a prime minister or president signs a free trade agreement today, the benefits of that free trade agreement may not be seen next year, the year after, it may be seen 5, 10, 15 years from now. And that, I think, is the problem when we're reporting on the on free trade and free trade agreements, because we could talk about provisions inside of a, a trade agreement. But in terms of its benefits, in terms of its success, 
I mean, there's economists today that are still writing articles on whether or not NAFTA was successful or not. And it's hard to determine whether or not NAFTA was successful uh, because there's just so many factors that go into whether or not uh, the trade agreement itself was a catalyst for economic growth in Canada, an already developed nation by the t- when NAFTA was signed. The United States, an already developed nation uh, when NAFTA was signed. Even Mexico, you know, I mean, uh, Mexico today is um, a major contributor to the United States um, in terms of their exports. And so it's hard to determine whether or not these free trade agreements are catalysts or um, would other uh, would other forces in the economy also improve standards of living? Would other factors in the economy, economy also um, increase job growth or reduce um, unemployment? It's really hard. So when we're talking about the economy, it is very challenging and very abstract, you know, it's hard to tangibly um, uh, talk about the economy because there is no, I guess, tangible output as well. Um, it's it's over successive periods of time that we see the benefits of free trade or the embracing of free trade. Um, but the risks are very short term and they're very immediate and they're very much in our face. And I'll get to that in a minute, but if we could define free trade, again, at a very high level, um, I'll do that right now. And free trade is defined as a policy of unrestricted uh, foreign trade with no tariffs or subsidies on imports or exports and no quotas or other trade restrictions. And trade liberalization refers to the relaxation of previous government restrictions in the areas of social or economic policy. It's also referred to as deregulation. Now, free trade as a theory, as an economic theory, is nothing new. In fact, it goes back to the 16th and 17th centuries um, in Europe when uh, the European powers were, uh, you know, growing their empire across the world, across the Atlantic Ocean, Africa, India, South Asia. Uh, It was growing its empires. And uh, as it was growing its empires, you know, tariffs were being placed. And, you know, I'm a big fan of history and trade routes were developed by certain countries and areas and other countries, competing countries trying to use this trade route where there were taxes placed on top of that. And that probably led a lot of resentment, led to a lot of resentment. And, you know, who knows, free trade could have been talked about for millennia, you know, so long as humans are trading goods over large areas of land and, you know, governors and and generals are enacting some type of trade barrier, whether that be a tax or some type of good or service that needed to be provided uh, before entry into a market. Yeah, you could understand how uh, people might view favorably to the idea of free trade. You know, free trade would allow countries to specialize in what they're good in and that they have a comparative advantage over and then trade that good um, in a way, making other countries better off as well as themselves better off. Um, And there's a lot of benefits to free trade. 
you know, um, there are many. I'm not going to go into every single one because we'd be here forever. But there, are the three main ones that I see um, are first market access. So countries can actually tap into the consumers and producers of different markets across the world. That can actually be a con- catalyst for growth. In fact, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development have said that, has said that countries that have open economies are three t- uh, grow their economies three times faster than those with closed economies. Another uh, benefit of free trade is the raising of the standard of living, uh, that the free trade experience raises living standards, increases real incomes, reduces large poverty uh, and absolute poverty, increases productivity and efficiency. Again, because of the uh, increasing competitive industries that are operating in a country, productivity goes up, efficiencies go up, uh, people can choose jobs in within a sector from various different companies because each are competing uh, to have the best product. Another benefit of free trade is also the improvements to employment and the investment climate. So again, associated with the raising of the standard of living, employment also rises because of the increase in competition. As employment in- rises, uh, our purchasing power as consumers also increase because uh, we're now able to purchase uh, our goods and services from a variety of providers. And because our trade barriers are lower, it increases and attracts investment that can lead into lead to growth, which in turn results in uh, consumer welfare. So there are many benefits to free trade. And you know, one story I'll share. Again, I'm a millennial, 80s baby, 90s kid. I, you know, our generation, I think we're the last uh, generation that experienced childhood without the internet and then with the internet. And it was an interesting time, I think, my generation, because we remember what it's like, you know, those summer nights, not having any internet and, you know, just going out and hanging out with friends and coming home, you know, late or whatever. And, uh, just not having uh, a phone or an iPad, you know, using your your parents' phone to call your friends, you know, it was in- an interesting time, that's for sure. And uh, but before the advent of the internet, also was uh, there weren't, you know, the there was a free trade agreement Canada signed with the United States, but there weren't many choices for goods and services in Toronto. You know, I grew up in Toronto. And I remember as a kid, my mom taking me back to school shopping. And I remember being taken back to school shopping and I needed a geometry set for school. And we went to, I think it was the bargain shop or bargain, no, it was the bargain shop or the bargain store or something. And they had um, a geometry set. It was for 16 bucks. And there was also Grand and Toy, which was expensive. There was uh, Kmart, which was okay, I guess. Uh, there wasn't a Dollarama. There wasn't Walmart. And so my mom was like, this is expensive. I mean, 16 bucks for this geometry set? I remember buying pencils and pens that were way more than what it is today. Binders were expensive. Notepads were expensive. Um, you know, sending your kid to school with school supplies was an expensive endeavor, especially for families in the lower middle income classes, you know, it wasn't like they were making big money. And you think about that $16 back then, if you adjust for inflation, what the costs of that, what the cost of that would be today. Uh, 
That's a lot of money for, for a geometry set. And so, you know, simple examples like that. And I remember that there weren't many choices for kids' clothing. You know, they're the major department stores. That's about it. You know, you're not, you know, H&M kids didn't exist and fast fashion didn't exist. So there weren't many options for, for kids to clothe themselves for parents. And also it was expensive. It was expensive for parents to buy these clothes for, for their kids. And you fast forward to today where you have Dollarama, we have Walmart, we have uh, H&M Kids, we have all of these, we have fast fashion for kids. Um, you know, it's incredible to me. You know, you could go to Dollarama and, you know, 20 bucks later, your kid is ready for school. You know, the notepads, pens, pencils, everything is so cheap. Whereas when I was growing up, it was not cheap at all. It was very expensive. Um, and again, limited selection and very expensive. So cost of living was very high. Um, but again, this is not to say that free trade is all good. You know, there's a lot of bad with free trade. And some of the risks with free trade include economic instability. You know, Canada is very dependent on the United States economy. You know, the economy in the United States goes down. Canada's economy generally would probably go down as well. Structural unemployment. You know, General Motors recently announced that they're closing or temporary closing their uh, production facility in Oshawa, Ontario. Um, you know, that decision wasn't made in Canada. Uh, it was made probably in a boardroom in, in the United States. And there's literally nothing the government of Canada or Ontario can do to get those jobs back. I mean, really, that's a decision for GM. And so... Um, because of that, uh, governments are, you know, in many ways, you can argue that the nation state can actually be undermined by the forces of embracing free trade, because these companies have no allegiance to any country. They have allegiance to their bottom line. And, um, you know, countries around the world wrestle with whether or not these, uh, you know, free trade agreements, or sorry, whether or not these uh, companies should have some some allegiance or some type of uh, responsibility, you know, when we make entire towns dependent on one employer, yeah, it can be very challenging. And then there's economic underdevelopment. Um, again, using the example of Oshawa, you know, laying off all of those individuals from that plant, you know, that's an entire local economy there that are dependent on the General Motors facility and factory. And their entire economic lives are maybe the majority of their economic uh, activity is in Oshawa. They go to stores, they go to coffee shops, they go to the grocery store, they go to the barber, they go to get their, their car fixed, they buy their cars, um, all in Oshawa. You know, that will be severely uh, challenged now with the closure of that plant. So there are serious threats to, to um, that come with the embracing of free trade. And listen, we, we also can't forget the very real aspect of politics in all of this. You know, countries that just embrace free trade, they can't just embrace free trade because there's a political, there's political uh, forces at play. You know, I mean, industries have lobby groups that want to be protected. Um, uh, countries uh, are, you know, they have... Uh, unions and other groups that support their bid for prime minister or president. 
um, there's a whole host of factors that go into whether or not countries can, um, you know, fully adopt free trade in its again in its naked theory of of reduced to no trade barriers. You know, people are people, and they're going to make decisions that at their at its core is free trade, but also include protectionist measures to protect their industries, to protect constituents, to protect ridings, to protect workers who voted for them. Um, to protect unions and other lobby groups, and to respond to the needs of lobby and special interest groups, and also politicians—they have term limits. You know, they have four and you know eight-year term limits or whatever it is. And you know, like I, I said earlier, the benefits of free trade—they really can't be seen today, tomorrow, next year, a year, two years from now. And so, signing a free trade agreement today. You don't know the benefits of it, and it the benefits may not be seen for ten to fifteen years out. And again, using my example of of buying a, a geometry set for sixteen dollars in the early nineties to what that cost is today, you know, it's just it, politicians back then that argued for free trade knew that no matter what, they would not get the benefit of. Um, you know, people today saying, oh, it was because of that person in the early 90s that wanted free trade in Canada. That's the reason why I can now send my kid to school at a reduced, at a cheaper rate. Like it is so convoluted, right? Uh, to think that. And um, another thing we have to think about free trade, at least in the North American context, is the massive protest and unrest when it comes to free trade and globalization. Here's an interesting statistic. Did you know that citizens in countries like France, Germany, the United Kingdom, and the United States believe globalization is a force for good 40% of the time? Whereas citizens in countries like India, China, Mexico believe globalization is a force for good 70% of the time. And that's an interesting statistic for me because we see citizens in developed nations that you'd one might say have benefited from sustained free trade policies by their governments over many years still be uh, concerned about globalization. And countries that have recently adopted free trade, um, like India, like China, um, their citizens see globalization as a force for good much more frequently. And perhaps it's because in these countries, um, people have seen that absolute poverty have has been reduced quite dramatically, uh, especially over the last 15 to 20 years. Whereas in, you know, France, Germany, Russia, sorry, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, the United States, this may be less true. Um, people may not have seen poverty reduced at such a fast pace as other countries around the world. Perhaps that's part of it. But nonetheless, in the 1990s, in the, in the mid to late 1990s, there were many protests and unrest um, by many groups towards globalization and free trade. Now remember, free trade, the theory at least, promised a lot. It promises lower unemployment. It promises higher standards of living. But what a lot of groups found was that uh, what this caused was an economic dislocation of jobs. Uh, 
that jobs were going down to countries where there weren't labor provisions, where there weren't uh, uh, environmental regulations, where workers were being treated unfairly and harshly and working around the clock with no protection, where um, uh, farmers were struggling to keep up with the demands from the uh, developed nations and led to large suicides uh, from farmers, as, as well as their crops not producing cotton as fast enough. Uh, as an example. And so uh, what we saw here was that this anti-globalization movement that, that was focused on these ethical dilemmas, the dislocation of jobs, but with the lower employment standards, the ethical treatment, unethical treatment of workers, the growing gap between the rich and the poor, the suffering of farmers, all of this was fueling the anti-globalization movement in the mid to late 1990s. Again, what the anti-globalization movement was, was saying, hey, you know, free trade promised these things. And what we're seeing is the exact opposite happening. We're seeing, uh, we don't see the standards of living rising. We see Maquiadora factories and areas in Mexico. We see labor standards in Haiti and Bangladesh um, being um, disregarded. We see factories uh, of workers working seven days a week. You know, uh, during this time, academic literature, like uh, the Canadian author Naomi Klein, wrote her work, uh, her book, uh, No Logo. Um, and I remember as a kid uh, on the on PBS, there was this documentary called Mickey Mouse Goes to Haiti. Uh, does anyone remember that? I, I might be the only one who remembers that, but uh, it was a video about how. Uh, Walt Disney t-shirts and products were made in sweatshops in Haiti where these workers were not being paid much at all. And, you know, we also can't ignore in 1999 the uh, protests in Seattle uh, against the World Trade Organization meeting where there were over 40,000 protesters. And, uh, you know, the imagery of the protesters being showered with pepper spray you know, point blank in their face by police officers. You know, the anti-globalization movement really focused on um, the, you know, what free trade in theory was supposed to bring and what it basically did not bring. And what it did was cause massive uh, dislocation of jobs and also a race, quote unquote, to the bottom, you know, a race to the bottom of labor standards, of environmental regulations, of um, you know, just general labor practices. Um, and companies were exploiting this and they were taking advantage of this. And so by um, the early 2000s, late 2000s, and even up to the 2016 United States federal election, what we see is that it was actually interesting. We, we hear from Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and both are actually arguing and debating uh, on increased protectionist measures um, that free trade is while great there needs to be protections for u.s workers there needs to be labor laws there needs to be um, regulations over that and jobs need to be quote-unquote brought back to the united states and so it's interesting to me to see this shift in idea especially as it comes to economic theory of free trade, because there's many economists, I don't know if there's an economist out there, that would not at least acknowledge the benefits of free trade. But as we march into the early 2000s and mid 
to late 2000s or mid 2000s now, um, we see this uh, emergence of increased protectionism. And that's where I'll leave this episode today because next week I really want to talk about the United States, Mexico, Canada agreement, uh, the provisions in there, how that differs from NAFTA, and try to unpack this whole rhetoric around, you know, ripping America off because I hear that phrase all the time and I really would like to get into that. So I hope this episode has set up next week's episode by uh, having an overview of free trade and globalization more broadly, um, understanding the economic theory of free trade, and um, providing a basis for helping us to understand future free trade agreements uh, that Canada may engage in. Again, thank you so much. You know, this podcast is definitely a work in progress and... um, you know, it's something that I really feel passionate about, and I'm glad that so many of you also feel passionately about this as well. Um, you know, it's still early days, still need to have a, a you know, a coordinated social media marketing strategy. Um, I need to get this podcast in front of more viewers and, you know, and, and make it more uh prominent for people to to read and access. And um, if you have any information, if you'd like to, you know, I'd love in the future to have interviews and have people on it. So again, reach reach out to me, talk to me, uh, strongandfree2018 at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And as always, as always, as always, stay balanced, stay informed. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.